I ask, Father, that as we open to study what you've prepared for us in this day, that you are also, Father, opening our hearts and preparing to show us something new, to ask something of us, and to empower us to obey. That is always our desire as we open the word, Father. We don't want to just be hearers of this word. We want to be doers of this word. And help us do, Father, what we are called to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to the text of Matthew chapter 27. That's where we pick up again. We're in the Passion of Christ. The story of Jesus' walk to the cross. This has got to be the best known most frequently retold stories of a man's death probably in the entire history of mankind. Certainly as Christians, we know it well. We've read the gospel accounts. Uh, We've heard people preach on it time and again. Every Easter, of course, we get to talk about it. But I'd say the whole world, Christian or not, probably knows quite a bit about this story. You know, they've seen the movies. They've seen the paintings They've heard the musical tributes by the masters like Bach or Mozart, and there is so much that has been said, written, done about this event that it has become part of our culture. It's even given birth to iconic phrases. You know, people today will still say things like carrying your cross or washing your hands of a situation. Those things come directly out of this story. That's how much people know it. And if you've heard me say now several times as we've been going through this story, that intense familiarity with the story of Jesus' death is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, it means we all have this reasonably good understanding of what happened and why. That's good. But on the other hand, it also means you're less likely to pay attention to some of the details whenever you have an opportunity to revisit it, as we are doing here. And those details can make a big difference, which is why we're taking our time why we're going through it in a thorough way. So I want to continue to ask you, as we go through the rest of the story, reset your expectations a little bit. Clear your mind a little bit of what you think you know. And not that it's all wrong, of course, but there are going to be some new things, and you don't want those new things to go by without taking note of their importance. And last week, for example, we've been talking about Judas and what was going on with him in this whole situation. I think you may have learned a few things there. There are some things about his circumstance that I think were new for you, and I hope so. Today we're going to look at Pilate. And there are some new things here today as well. Last week we left off with Jesus standing before Pilate in the Antonian Fortress inside the walled city of Jerusalem. Around him are the religious leaders who are there pressing for a guilty verdict. And although as Matthew doesn't record this, we know from the other Gospels there comes a point in this scene where Pilate sends Jesus away to Herod, King Herod, somewhere else in the city so that Herod can have some time with Jesus. He kind of has some fun with Jesus and then he sends him back to Pilate. We've gone past that point now. And now Pilate is faced with this difficult decision. He is utterly perplexed about what to do with this man, Jesus. He knows Jesus is innocent. In fact, on a number of separate occasions, we count five different times across the Gospels, he is going to declare, Pilate declares, Jesus is innocent. He knows there's nothing he's done. There's no guilt. And at the same time, he is struck by the way the religious leaders are fiercely trying to get Jesus put to death. He can't reconcile those two. There's a point in Mark's gospel where Mark says that Pilate had figured out that the religious leaders were acting purely out of spite against Jesus. And so he can't decide what's worse here, convicting an innocent man or letting him go and risking a Jewish riot at Passover. And so Pilate is stuck, but then it comes a moment, and that's where we pick up today in verse 15. There comes a moment when Pilate 
lands upon this scheme, this really shrewd idea, and he thinks this is going to uh, turn the Jewish crowd to his side, enlist their support, allowing him to release Jesus without a riot ensuing. Here's his plan, verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. All right, so as we read there at the beginning, there's a tradition that had grown up in the period of time in which Rome had control over Judea. And this tradition was to allow the Jewish crowd to select one prisoner under Roman authority to be released at Passover. And that tradition is not mentioned anywhere in historical records outside of the Gospels themselves. But, you know, it's easy to see how a tradition like that would have gotten started. Rome... Uh, valued peace and stability above virtually all else. And the Jews living in Jerusalem were always a bit trigger happy at this time of year. There was always a, a sense of unrest. There was agitation. You know, for them, Passover was like our 4th of July. It was their national independence celebration. Remember, its roots are in the Exodus. Israel coming out from under Egyptian authority, slavery and the like. Now, every time Passover rolls around and they're under Roman authority, they're thinking to their freedom again. And so this had a tendency to stir up a bunch of problems in the city. And so the Romans, looking to keep things stable, they wanted a way to please the crowd. So they happened upon this practice of releasing a Jewish prisoner to the crowds each year as a gesture of goodwill. And at this moment, Pilate remembers this tradition and he thinks, this is my get out of jail free card. This will work because now he can bypass the pressure that the religious leaders are putting on him to convict Jesus, he can put the decision in the hands of the crowd. And if the crowd does the right thing, well, the Jewish leaders will have no way to stop them. And of course, the crowd will be happy, so they won't riot. So Pilate arranges to put Jesus and another prisoner that he has at that time before the crowd and allow the crowd to make the choice who is gonna be released. And to ensure that Jesus is the one they choose to be released, Pilate arranges for the alternative to be this notorious mercenary, a man by the name of Barabbas. And he's hoping that the crowd will find this choice to be very easy because by all accounts, Barabbas was an unloved career criminal. Matthew, as you saw here, says that he's a notorious man. Notorious just means he was a well-known troublemaker. In John's gospel, we're told that Barabbas was a robber, and in the book of Acts, we're told he was also a murderer. And Luke tells us he was arrested because he had been trying to lead insurrection against the Roman authorities. Look, this guy is nothing but trouble. And Pilate assumes there is no way this crowd is gonna ask for someone like Barabbas to be released when the alternative is Jesus. You know, he trots Jesus out, and it's likely that he expected that to generate sympathy. By this point, he's been roughed up. Jesus is in pretty bad shape. Uh, His face is bloody, it's bruised. You know, he's gone through the whole night before of abuse. He's just pitiful. And he's saying nothing. He's not trying to defend himself. And so surely he's thinking the people are gonna favor Jesus over Barabbas. And in verse 17, it says, he seats himself on the judgment seat. 
on the porch, on the steps of the Antonian Fortress before the crowd, brings out the two guys, and he puts the question to the crowd, who should I release? Now, at this point, there's a brief pause. It's not recorded here, but it's implied. The crowd doesn't immediately respond. And it makes some sense, right? They've suddenly got a choice between, b- before them, and they're sitting there thinking, well, I mean, who do we check? Who, who, who do we want out? And before they can make any decision, there is going to be an interruption. While that's going on, you have to imagine the religious leaders are a little nervous right now. They may not have seen this coming, and they're not sure what the crowd's gonna do. This could upend their whole plot. So as Pilate is going into this process with the crowd, he gets interrupted by an urgent note. His wife has sent a note from home, and he's told about this, so he gets up, he leaves the judgment seat, he goes off the porch, goes back into the Antonian fortress, he leaves the two guys out there, the crowd out there, contemplating their decision. And back in the fortress, he reads the note, and his wife says, I've had a dream the night before. In my dream, I suffered greatly because of this man, Jesus. And and we don't know what she means, but clearly her dream was disturbing enough that she felt the need to interrupt him at work and tell him about it. And you have to imagine that she knew about him probably because in the night before when Pilate got Judas to testify and he sent the cohort after Jesus, they did a little shop talk at home. Hey, how was your day, honey? Oh, I had this thing with a man named Jesus. We've arrested him. We'll see him in the morning. Something like that may have happened. She goes to bed, then she has this dream. And she wakes up and she tells herself, I've got to warn my husband. So she tells him, do nothing, have nothing to do with this righteous man. Again, I don't know what she was expecting. I mean, Pilate's already embroiled in this moment. It's not exactly like he can just walk away and ignore what is happening. The man's in custody. He has to make some kind of decision. So perhaps she's just warning him, don't make a decision against him. Still, like most husbands, Pilate stupidly ignores his wife's counsel and just moves right on with the proceedings. But here's the question we need to answer before we go back to the scene for a moment. Why did the Lord give Pilate's wife this dream? Because you know it was the Lord. The Lord has spoken to her concerning his righteousness. Now, obviously, the Lord did not expect this to arrive at Pilate releasing Jesus. I mean, the Father has planned from the foundations of the earth that Jesus would go to the cross. There is no other plan. There's no part B here. This is what's going to happen. So given that God gave this dream to Pilate's wife, we have to ask the question, what was he hoping to achieve by it? What was the point? And there are two answers to that question. One comes out of church tradition, and one comes out of this passage of Scripture. First, let's talk church tradition. Tradition, you know, when I say church tradition, that, that's a way of saying something that's documented from the earliest days of the church and yet is not in Scripture. So we treat it with a bit of uh, care, right? We, we take it with a grain of salt. It, it could be true, but we're not confident, or at least we can't be certain because it's not recorded in Scripture. Nonetheless, the first church, the early church, maintains that this woman, Pilate's wife, whose name they say was Claudia, The tradition is Claudia, unlike her husband, came to faith in Jesus based on this dream and the testimony of the disciples in the early first century church. Uh, As I said, we can't know that that's true, but it could be true. And if so, then it would certainly give us a clear reason why the Lord gave this dream to her, that the Lord was working in that dream and in her heart to prepare her to believe in the testimony of Jesus, both from what she saw in her dream and from what she heard later. 
And as the wife of the governor of this province, she would have been in a unique position to hear things about what was happening in Jesus' experience, the testimony he gave to Pilate, the reports of his missing body. She would have known that was true. Her husband would have been part of the group of people looking for Jesus' body to put down rumors. You know, the, the religious leaders would have been trying to find his body, certainly. She would have realized that there was something to this story. The disciples can confirm they saw him. He was resurrected. All of this would have meant she was in a unique position to know the facts and to see the truth of the gospel playing out. And then, as such an unlikely convert, much like Paul, she would have had a powerful witness in those early days and among a very unique circle of influence within Judea. Imagine her testimony when she's sitting around with a bunch of ladies at a Bible studies and they're having their, their little fellowship time and she, and they, oh, I'm Claudia, my husband is the man who put Jesus to death. How are you today? You know, that is, a, that is an amazing testimony, right? There's something very godlike in that testimony. And this moment shows us the extent to which God is willing to move at times in the life of an individual to bring truth to the heart of a person. And not just for their own sake, I mean, obviously for Claudia, this is a very important moment, but it was also important for the church. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.1 that the church is to pray for the salvation of all men and women, but particularly of a certain group. He says in chapter 2, verse 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying that the Lord wants you to pray for the salvation of everyone, men, women, whomever. But in this context, he's talking about a certain group. When he says all men, verse two is his definition of that. What is the definition of all men? He means kings and all who are in authority. In other words, People in every place in society. That's what he means by all people. Do not limit your prayer life with respect to salvation to your family. Do not limit it to your friends. Do not limit it to those who you think are in the best position to be saved. Those who are in Christian families, those who are going to church but haven't believed yet. Or maybe you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 1. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong, and he uses things that are unwise, ignoble, to shame those who are wise. If you think like that, you think, oh, well, I should be praying for the the weak and the foolish because God says that's where he works the most. That's all true. But in 1 Timothy 2, he also says, don't forget to pray for the people you don't expect to see saved. You know, the presidents, the prime ministers, the justices, the speakers of the house and the Senate majority leaders and your local politicians and your local rich and powerful and mighty, the ones you've written off, the ones you think have no hope. Friends, there's no such person. And Paul says, when you pray for the potential that God might move in their lives, then comes the opportunity for you to lead a tranquil and quiet life because by their unique influence, if they come to know what you know, and believe what you believe, you've got a friend in powerful places. Claudia in the early church, and again, this is by tradition, but Claudia in the early church was in a position to influence the man who was at the top of the ladder in Judea. And we don't know what she would have done with that necessarily, but we can assume some things, can't we? 
You know, the early church has a remarkable period before persecution broke out, a remarkable few decades in which it flourished in Jerusalem without persecution, without anyone bothering it at all. Can we not safely assume that Claudia may have had some influence in producing that outcome for the sake of the church by how she influenced her husband? Just as the Lord put Joseph in Egypt and Daniel in Babylon so that they were in positions of authority to guard over the people of Israel, so may it have been that Claudia was one of those early guardians of the church in God's economy. That's what the call of praying for all men and women is about. Not just for their individual sake, but because the church itself is under the care of those in authority. And we want God to work in that way. That's the first reason why she got this dream. But it leads us directly to the second in a particularly ironic twist that shows the sovereignty of God in a remarkable way. While Pilate was away dealing with this message from his wife, he's left the proceedings to pause out on the porch of the Antonian fortress. And during that brief delay, the religious leaders see their opportunity. They've worried about what the crowd is going to do in this moment. And had that moment gone on uninterrupted, it would have been completely out of their hands. But because of the pause, they realize that they can influence the crowd. And in verse 20, before Pilate returns, we're told that the Pharisees start moving through the crowd, influencing everyone against Jesus. Now, perhaps they threaten people, do what we say or else. Or maybe they were bribing people and we'll do this for you if you vote our way, whatever. Either way, they convince the crowd to call for Jesus' death and Barabbas' release. Now think about this for a minute. This is so ironic. They would not have had the opportunity to do that except that Claudia delayed the proceedings with her note. And what was she doing with the note? She was trying to save Jesus and her husband. And in the end, her note became part of the conspiracy to convict him. God gave her that dream, not only for her own sake, but also to ensure that these proceedings went in the direction God intended, which was that the people would call for Jesus to be crucified. Is that not an amazing display of how God can sovereignly ensure everything works together according to his purpose for the good of his eternal plan? And I'd say perhaps more than anything else you might remember today, and for that matter, the thing you ought to remember most days God is in control. Now, we say that a lot, and I know that we mean it, but we also tend to think of it only in a certain way. I've heard people talk about this a lot, and then in the detail of what they say, you realize what they mean is, in the end, God gets it all done. In the end, it kind of works out the way God wanted. In the end, he's in control. But they then think that every little detail in between might or might not be in his control. Friends, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot control the end unless you also control the means to that end. I mean, think about it. How do you separate anything from anything else? The only way the big things happen, I mean, what is a big thing? Whatever that is in your mind, oh, God controls the big things. Okay, what is a big thing made of? Lots of little things. And you can't get from the end to the beginning, beginning to the end, unless you have everything in the middle under your control. God is in control of every little detail on every path that leads to the end, in your life and in the life of every single other human being on the planet. Nothing is outside his control. There's no other God. Who else could do it? You think, well, God does some things and not others. Who's doing the others? They're just happening? There's nothing that just happens. You cannot separate the two. And you know, people talk about this in various ways. God does this, but that was the enemy. Who's the enemy work for? 
God? Do you think he does anything that God doesn't want him to do? I mean, there's several books of the Bible I turn you to that show that that's not true. He is completely on a leash. God lets him do only what he wants him to do, period. There's no such thing as God in control and other things just happen. God makes everything happen. And if you don't believe me, believe him, because here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse six. He wants, this is him speaking in the first person that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I am the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. That's his word. There's no one else. He said, in fact, I need to make sure you all understand there's no one besides me. I did everything. I want credit for all of it. Now, the challenge we have, of course, as believers is how in the world can we credit God with stuff that looks so bad to us? Well, look back at this little moment for an example. You see this at work in this truth, the truth working here. You have this wife who gets a dream and reacts a certain way, and in her mind, she's working for the good of what she thinks God wants. And at the same time, if she had done what she had wanted, she would have messed up the plan of salvation. So what does God do? He harnesses what she does and puts it to work to ensure his plan gets accomplished. Now, in the moment, at the time of it, it would have been easy for someone in her situation to look at that and say, what a terrible thing, God, you let your son die. Three days later, she finds out, no, not so bad. Actually, perfect. Actually, exactly what we all needed. You see the difference three days make? Well, how much difference does an eternity make then? In other words, the things you see in your life now, the troubling circumstances that you all face, we all face something, it comes and goes throughout our life. Whenever you're in the middle of those circumstances, you are existing in a slice of a very long period of time in history from the beginning of the foundations of the earth till the end of whatever God is doing. You are existing in the thinnest of slices. And if you think, based on your experience in that moment, you are in a position to judge what God is doing in the whole, you're, you're, you're fooling yourself. We have no hope to know what's going on to happen tomorrow or the next day. Until you get to the end, you can't judge him. Until you know how he's gonna turn the whole thing to good as he said he will, you're in no position. We're in no position to make an assessment about whether what's happening to us right now is the right thing or not, whether it's good or not. Yes, it's not good in how we experience it perhaps, but that doesn't mean it's not good in what God is gonna do through it. Good can be almost impossible to see in the midst of pain. And I'm sure Claudia couldn't understand what God was doing in her life at the beginning of this, but in time, as he reveals his purpose, and as you trust him in the meantime, it will work itself out. I'm not saying you'll enjoy the process. Trial is never easy. But until your story ends, do not prejudge him on what he's doing through it. And look, I don't think this will surprise you when I say this. Oftentimes, the thing that God needs to do for us, the best thing he could do for us, can only be done through a trial. There was a couple of moments in the baptism this morning. I wish you guys could have been here. I know you, you, you wish you could too, but there were two of the four, three people who when they testified in the water both told similar stories in the sense that they both talked about being in a dark place and then God showed up and moved in a set of circumstances that ultimately arrived at them coming to faith and they can see now, even in this period of time, how that set of circumstances brought them to faith. And look, if you ask them right now, would you rather have escaped the trial and stayed in your sins or have gone through the trial and come to faith? The answer to that is obvious. So take that same idea. God is sovereign. He's given me things in my life to deal with. I don't like them, but he's in control. It's not the devil. It's, not, it's God. And then you have the opportunity to ask yourself, what do I do with this, Lord, as opposed to trying to escape it? 
or just wallowing in it. When you know it's from God, you have a reason to ask why. And he loves that question. I think he does. The scriptures indicate he wants us to bring that question to him. Why is this happening? Why do I have to endure this? How much longer? Please end it soon. Those are great things to bring to God, but don't forget the most important one. What do you want me to get out of it? If you ask that one, and you have to believe in God's sovereignty to even think to pose it. But if you ask that one, and when he answers that one, suddenly something senseless makes sense. And there has never, in my experience, been a better way to endure trial than to understand why. You can endure anything when you understand why. But often we don't ask the question, so we don't get the answer. We often just wallow in self-pity. Don't miss the chance to learn something from what God does in your life, because he's working for good. So Pilate returns. He's come back now. He's dealt with the wife interruption. He sat down on the judgment seat a second time, picks up where he left off in his shrewd little plan, although... Now it's not going to go quite the way he expected. Verse 21. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Well, then what do I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Well, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. So what started as a really shrewd plan has turned into a strategic blunder. And now he's playing right into the hands of the religious leaders who have primed the crowd. This time that they had, the delay they had, they've got the crowd all worked up to give the right answer. So when he asks again, they all say in unison, Barabbas should be released. And I think he was probably astonished. This is not what he expected, certainly. And he goes back to the crowd. He can't believe it. He says, all right, so what do you want me to do with this guy then? And they say, crucify him. And it's interesting, though, he asks them, what has he done in verse 23? He can't understand their hatred. What has he done? You notice they don't answer that. They don't have an answer. They're not answering because they've decided Jesus needs to die. They're answering because the religious leaders have told them to say that. Matthew records here just this one moment, but Altogether, the Gospels show us that Pilate does this routine three times before the crowd. Each time brings them out. Each time says, all right, let's try this again. Which one do you guys want? Each time they say, crucify Jesus or that he's not our king and so on. There's a point, in fact, in that process where Pilate just cannot believe he's getting this answer. So he takes the extra step of sending Jesus away temporarily, having him scourged, flogged, then bringing him back again. And I think he did that primarily to increase sympathy. Uh, next week we're going to cover the physical effects of Roman scourging because it comes up again after this passage. And just as a brief warning to parents, if you think your child may have difficulty hearing some of those details, then that might be a sermon where you might want to have them either in the back with the children's ministry or perhaps take other steps. But we'll deal with that next week. For now, you just need to know it was utterly devastating. And having scourged Jesus at that point and then bringing him back out in front of the crowd Uh, he would have had the most miserable of appearances, barely even looking human at that point. And yet, it has no effect on the crowd. They are no more sympathetic at that point than they were the first time. And as a result, with five times he has now declared that Jesus is innocent, three times he tried to get the crowd to make the right choice, and each time the crowd grows more vociferous in their demands until finally Pilate realizes Hey, I tried to get this done without a riot. I'm now in danger of creating a riot. And he just gets up frustrated and he says, I've given up. 
And he sits on the judgment seat. He says, Jesus, though he is innocent, will die. And Pilate's going to put Jesus to death. He's going to release Barabbas. And once more, in this moment, you see this amazing display of God's sovereignty. And that's a theme, if you haven't detected, for this morning. And here's what you need to see in this moment in your mind's eye. On the one side of Pilate, you have Jesus. His, his Hebrew name is Yeshua, which translates to Joshua, if you wanted to find the literal English of it. Uh, eventually, through Greek, it becomes Jesus. But it's all the same name, Yeshua. And we know him to be the son of God the Father. He's the righteous one. He's the son of the living God. The Bible says he is the firstborn among many brethren, which is a way of saying that he brings forth a family by faith. Brothers and sisters, us, by being born again. And then on Pilate's other side, you have Barabbas, the career criminal. Now, Barabbas is not his actual name because Barabbas is just a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew title. And in Hebrew, the word bar is the word for son. And Abbas, or Abba, is the name for father. So in Hebrew, he just is called son of the father. And one of the early church fathers, a man named Origen, wrote a commentary on this part of Matthew. And Origen lived very soon after these events. We believe his testimony is accurate. He says that the man's given name was Yeshua, which was a very common Jewish name in that time. Would have been like Mike or Steve or John. Not necessarily remarkable that he was called Yeshua, but it's remarkable that on that day, on either side of Pilate, stood two men, both who are Yeshua, son of the Father. So God has prepared this moment so that you have Jesus and Barabbas each serving as their respective federal representatives, if you will, of two kinds of spiritual families. You have Barabbas, son of the father. Well, who's his father? Who's the father of every unbeliever? It would have to be the devil, right? And as such, he is the perfect representative of Satan's nature. Think about it. What does the Bible tell us about Satan? He was a liar, he was a thief, He's a murderer, and he's an usurper of thrones. We've already heard Barabbas is a liar, a thief, a murderer, and a usurper of the Roman rule over Judea. You couldn't have picked a better example. Meanwhile, you have Jesus, son of the Father of lights, the perfect representation of God the Father in heaven, according to Hebrews. He is innocent, he is righteous in every way, and all who are born again by faith in him are children of God and share in his nature. That is the choice that stood before the people of Israel in that moment. You have, choosing between, you have them choosing between righteousness and sin, life or death, God or Satan. Is that a coincidence? <laughs> you know, you'd have more faith required to believe that's a coincidence than to believe God has orchestrated that moment to make a point, right? This is a moment in which God has said, you are choosing not just between two prisoners on a given day, you're choosing between two paths, two spiritual futures. And there was no way, there was no way they were gonna make the right choice. Because Paul tells us in Romans chapter three, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not even one. There is no way that crowd was gonna, by their own power, that is in their own nature, choose to see Barabbas destroyed, the man who really represented them, and let Jesus free, a man whose innocence and righteousness offended their nature. 
They stand as perfect examples of two types of people in the world. You've heard me say this, I'm sure. There are only two types of people. You don't get a third choice, just as there wasn't a third one in that moment either. Barabbas is the picture here of every unbeliever, dead in their sins, in constant rebellion to God and to his word. Ultimately, they are due death. And Jesus, on the other hand, represents all those who are born again by faith, believers, we would say, counted righteous, and yet, because of that, hated by the world, just as Jesus was. And as should be obvious, God has prepared this entire scene in every one of its details to make clear that this is a spiritual fork in the road. Think about what had to go into this moment in order for this scene to even come to play. Barabbas' life had to be orchestrated through every detail of his life so that he would be here on this day. You see the point of God's sovereignty again in this? You 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 can't get Barabbas there unless everything that leads up to that moment happens according to a perfect plan so that the stars align and the moments coincide and everybody shows up, bam, right when they need to. Never mind Jesus the same and Pilate for that matter and Claudia for that matter. This is a moment God orchestrated from the very beginning and brought it to play. And he shows you his hand by the names of these two men so that you have to stand back and go, well, then God wanted this to happen. Yes, that's the whole point. But he also wants you to learn something from it. Every human being is on one side or the other of this same fork in the road, I call it. There's no third choice, just like this crowd had no third choice. Another way to say it is you gotta pick your Yeshua. Spiritually speaking, You either choose that that Barabbas inside you is going to die and your Christ is going to live inside you or you reject the Son of God, you remain dead in your sins and you will see the consequences. That's the the message of the gospel. Everyone in the world needs to hear that message. Everyone in the world has to make a decision. Pilate declares his verdict here in verse 24 and then as you notice, he ceremonially washes his hands of the decision, declaring, this blood's not on me, it's on you guys and on your children and so on. Let me be clear about something. That little ceremony he did there before the crowd did not absolve him of any guilt. It does not work that way. You do not get the, the right to decide for yourself which of your sinful decisions God is gonna hold against you. I'm sorry, I wish that were true. We'd probably say none of them, right? But you don't get that choice. Five times in this scenario, Pilate has declared Jesus an innocent man, and yet he had him scourged. Ultimately, he sent him to his death. He tortured and killed a man that he knew was innocent. And why? Because he feared losing his job. That little ceremony did nothing to lessen his guilt. Ironically, not only did he not save himself from the guilt of this moment, he didn't even save his job. Because history records that he loses this job just a few years later when Caligula, the Caesar, removes him from office and has him banished out of Judea. Probably because he was too chummy with the religious leaders. Maybe they manipulated him into making a bad decision. I mean, a guy that can't even decide this issue properly, he was probably being twisted around and pushed every time he turned around and he eventually got himself in trouble. He gets sent to a place called Gaul, which is the ancient term for France. Now at this point you might be thinking, that doesn't sound so bad, get to go to France. Well, in that day, France wasn't necessarily a vacation spot. Under Roman rule, it was constantly raided by barbarians. It was underdeveloped, so it was ripe with disease, and it was not a desirable post. History records that In fact, some of you are thinking, well, it's not so different now. History is recording that Pilate committed suicide as a result of going to Gaul, fitting in for him. You know, it's interesting. The man who betrays Jesus and the man he betrays him into the hands of both take their own lives 
as a result of what they did. I think the demons that were driving them tormented them to the end. So Pilate knew the right thing to do, but he chose to sin anyway for something he wanted. He tries to have his cake and eat it too, as we say, and excuse his choice and put it on someone else and blame someone else. You know, you've got all these representatives standing up there, Jesus for the believer, Barabbas for the unbeliever. I think Pilate gets a little opportunity here too to represent something in what he did. He is a poster child for how the unbelieving world looks at their own sin. They want it. Cake and eat it too, right? They want to sin, and let's be honest about that. But unbelievers like sinning. Now, we sin also, but the difference is we don't like it so much. Even if you think you do, you really don't. You have the spirit of God inside you. The, the most miserable people I ever meet are believers who are intent on a life of disobedience because you now have someone inside you who is constantly reminding you that that wasn't very smart. That's not a good choice. You shouldn't be doing that. God's not really happy about that. You're tormented by your own sin in a way that unbelievers don't even worry about. That's why we call them sinners. They sin. They like it. It's part of who they are. It's who we were before Christ. And yes, we still sin now, but we don't like it. They love it. And they don't see it as a problem, right, until the consequences hit. Then they realize, okay, we may have done something wrong. We have no choice but to admit there's something wrong in what we did. But then they look for the excuses. Not my choice. I had to do it. Someone made me. It's what everyone else does. They shift the blame somehow, right? There's never going to be a moment where they truly own up to it in a way that changes their life. They have the repentance of Esau, a kind of worldly sorrow coming out of circumstances and soon forgotten. You can't wash your hands of sin. The only thing that washes away your sin is the blood of Christ, right, who died for you. So when an unbeliever or anyone else tries to claim, it's not my choice, I don't get to get blamed, it's not up to me, it's someone else's fault, that excuse only works so long there is a day of reckoning and sooner or later we all know the truth. So that's what happened to Pilate. What about the Jewish religious leaders who were conspiring through this whole scene? persuading the crowd and so on. Whatever happens to them? Well, in John 19, 11, there's a moment where Jesus is talking to Pilate and he tells Pilate, your guilt in this matter is exceeded by the guilt of those who handed me over to you. And we think of Judas when we think like that, but Judas really is not the one he's, Jesus is talking about. He's talking about these men. These men are the puppet masters that made everything happen through Judas and otherwise. Now, we don't know exactly how God differentiates in punishing people in various levels of sin, in eternal punishment. We don't know how that works. I don't really want to know, frankly. But the scriptures are clear. Just as there are levels of reward for believer, there are levels of punishment for unbelievers. And again, I ask you the easiest way to move outside of that concern is to know Jesus. So the religious leaders came to their end in a greater punishment in eternity. And then finally, what about the Jewish crowd? The ones who said, oh yeah, put that on us and our children. Well, verse 25 tells us that they voluntarily accepted the consequences, though I doubt they really understood it. But that decision had a very severe and long-term consequence. Now, I want to be clear here. They had no more control over whether guilt rested on them or not than Pilate did when he made his declaration. So I'm not saying they inherited something they wouldn't have had anyway. They're just saying it, but they were going to feel the effect one way or the other. Remember back in Matthew 12, been a little while, but in Matthew 12 we studied the moment when the official representatives of Israel, the Pharisees, rejected Jesus' claim to be Messiah, remember? They committed what Jesus called the unpardonable sin. That's the sin of seeing Jesus, seeing the work of the Spirit in him, showing that he is truly the Messiah, and in that moment, attributing that work to Satan. 
Clearly, we can't repeat it because Jesus has to be present for the sin to be even committed. But it was committed in that day by that generation of Israel through their representatives when they said to the crowd, this is not the Messiah, this is Satan. And the crowd said, oh, okay, you, mu- you guys must know what you're talking about. In that moment, Jesus said, that generation of Israel lost the opportunity to receive their king and their kingdom. He came declaring the kingdom of God was at hand. He was willing to give them the kingdom in the day if they had received him as their king. They rejected him. And so the kingdom did not come to Israel in that day, nor will it come to Israel until, Jesus said, they reverse that mistake and the nation of Israel call upon Jesus as Lord, as Messiah. And now you're seeing the second step, if you will, in the progression of that judgment playing out. Because in chapter 12, you had the religious leaders making that declaration. Here now, you have the people themselves making that same declaration with their own mouths. In the other gospels, you see them saying, he is not our king, Caesar is our king. And in just a few decades, as a result of this sin, the prophecies that Jesus gave were played out. They lost their temple, they lost their city, they lost their place in the land, and since then, they've been scattered. All of that judgment is what Scripture said would come upon Israel for their rejection of their Messiah. But that's not the end of the story, because the Bible says even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. And the Bible teaches that in a future day, the God of Israel, who made promises to his people through covenants that were unconditional, that put no conditions on them, never asked them for anything and never demanded them do anything. I'm thinking specifically of the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. Those covenants have promised Israel things that will happen. Look, friends, if he can go back on those promises, then he can go back on yours. So he is either faithful or he's not. And he is, thankfully. And in a future generation, we're told that at the end of this age, another generation of Israel will rise up and that generation of Israel, all Jews who are alive on the earth in that future day, collectively, they will all confess Christ. They will all do what the first generation didn't. And in response to their call upon Jesus, he returns to them and gives them the kingdom, an event we call the second coming. The Old Testament tells us this is gonna happen. Hosea chapter three, verse four We read, the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice, meaning the temple, or sacred pillar, without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. By the way, this was written after David was long dead. This is a prophecy looking forward to Jesus. And then Paul tells us in Romans 11, 25, Speaking to the church, he says, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, but a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and then he says, all Israel will be saved, referring to all those who are alive in this future day. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The Bible says that day is coming and soon to come, I would tell you, when all Jews on earth will be moved by the Spirit of God to confess Christ. It comes at the end of this age, at the end of a period called tribulation, and it then leads directly to the Lord's second coming. Paul says that is because he made a promise and a covenant, just as he made one to you in a covenant. Do you not see now in this third example another amazing display of God's sovereignty working through the sin of humanity to accomplish good on that day? Ask yourself, what if Claudia never had the dream? What if there was never a delay? What if Jesus was released instead of killed? 
What if the nation of Israel called on him as Messiah instead of calling on him to be crucified? Then the kingdom would have been made available in that day, and if the kingdom had come in that day, we would not have been included in it. So God harnesses the sin of all those people in that moment and their various actions, bringing about an exact plan of his making so that the effect of it is one generation of Israel turning aside the Messiah so that generations of Gentiles might receive him. And yet, because he's faithful, the plan will eventually circle back around and bring Israel to faith so that they get what they were promised in the end. Everyone involved in this moment was acting out of sinful hearts with evil motives, and yet all were under the authority and the control of God. From the Jewish leaders who were plotting to save their nation by killing a rival, but in the end, that just ensured the destruction of their nation. To Pilate, who knew the right thing to do, but yet knowingly condemned an innocent man to save his job, and he ends up losing it anyway. To Claudia, who acted to help her husband and Jesus with that warning, but ended up sealing Jesus' fate through that warning. To Barabbas, who I assume must have rejoiced at being freed in place of Jesus, and all that served to do was give him a few more years to commit more sins so that he could be that much more judged in the end. And then there's Jesus, the only innocent one in the scene, who said nothing and did nothing to defend himself, and yet lost everything for our sake. Next week, we're going to study the beginning of how he did that in his crucifixion. And as we do, I'm going to return to a question I posed to you a few weeks back. Why is it in God's purposes did God expect his son to suffer so much on the way to his atoning death? We answered that with one part a few weeks ago. We'll give you the second answer next week when we come back for that. Obviously, an important part of the gospel, and I hope you're here as we get into this next section. Meanwhile, this week, we run out of here Going back to our daily life, going back to our work, we all have a life, we're all living it. This is just a moment on that path, but I hope it did give you something new to think about. God is sovereign. Everything that's gonna happen this week, he appointed. Are you gonna make the most of it or not? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge your sovereign will. We acknowledge what your word tells us, Father. You are the God who creates all things, that his made all things and is bringing all things to its appointed end. In our life, Father, the days we live on this earth may be but a small piece of it, but we know that it's no less under your control. And so I pray, Father, for the hearts of those in here now, all of us, who are involved in a life that includes suffering or includes trial, worries and difficulties that we don't know how to face or we are overwhelmed with, perhaps. Father, help us see the purpose in them. We pray that why question to you now. Why, Father, is it in our life? What are you doing with it? Help us make the most of it. And then, Father, move it out of our lives just as quickly as your will would permit. But most of all, Father, come quickly. Bring this age to an end. Bring us to the glory we anticipate and look forward to so that we will not have these things any longer. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.